We are in Genesis chapter 24. I sent out an email this week to exhort you to read all 67 verses. Because uh, I thought it would be a daunting task to stand up here and read all 67 verses. Um, I was sharing with Tracy, though, or maybe it was with Kara, in the book of Ezra, they stood in the rain all day and listened to the word of God read. Paul exhorts the young pastors not to forsake the reading together of the word, and so I'm kind of between a dilemma. We will read much of this passage, and I will commend the rest of it to you. We're going to turn our attention back 2000 BC to 2000 BC. And we're going back to the story of Isaac. Uh, And it's going to probably make our 21st century uh, sensibilities bristle a little bit when we look at an arranged marriage. Uh, The man and the woman don't even meet until essentially their wedding day. And I'm not going to stand here and preach arranged marriages. So uh, my daughter doesn't have to fear that, hopefully. But that is, it's an interesting discussion to look at it culturally, culturally and throughout history. But the story of the union of Isaac and Rebekah really wouldn't have raised a whole lot of eyebrows in, in days past. It's a sweet story. It's a simple story. Uh, there, there are no explosions, nobody dies, there is no uh, tragic sin that is involved in it. But within the story, we see fleshed out the events in the life of a family that has great faith in God and sees God's hand all over what they have done. We are going to see God really holding his covenant together in the very simple story of a marriage between a man and a woman. And we see his plan unfold. I have to imagine Isaac at the end of the story where he first sees his bride. If he even imagined that 4,000 years later, people would still be extolling this event. A piece of a puzzle where he did not comprehend the full picture. But what we see in this story throughout is really an ordinary faith. A faith that really is expected of you and I today. And I say ordinary faith because we tend to look at David... We go, whoa, that was an extraordinary faith. That required great faith to walk out against Goliath. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would say, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow before your idols. Well, that takes great faith, because they got thrown in the furnace. They knew it. That takes great faith. Likely, none of us will ever have to face anything that extreme. But I will contend that each of us will face the daunting challenge of staying the course that God has laid out before you, of abiding your little piece of the puzzle, living the life 
in a manner pleasing and honoring to Him. That requires an ordinary faith. But understand this, that such faith is the same faith exercised by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Such faith, the same faith that was exercised by David. It is a faith whose source is God. And through the conduit of faith, through that relationship with him, through that trust of him, is the power that built the cosmos. It is the power that holds each cell in your body in place together. It is the power that rose Christ from the dead. It is the power that will bring you home to glory. And each moment that we exercise our faith and trust in our great God and Father is like a brick built into a wall that shields us from the fiery darts that are going to come in this world. Fiery darts intended to destroy you and dismantle your faith and derail your witness. So today we're going to turn to a simple story, a lovely story that shows a great God and people who had an ordinary faith. Let's bow our hearts before God here this morning. Lord, we ask that you would guard our hearts and minds as we turn to your word. Lord, be high and lifted up in the preaching of your word. God, show yourself great amongst your people today. Lord, we, we, we want to fellowship with you intimately. We want to hear your voice. We want to dwell with you. Father, we want you to have your way in our lives to cleanse us that we might be a pure people for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When last we got together, we looked at an extraordinary test, the test of faith for both Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was very passive in the story of his sacrifice that didn't happen. He went along. Abraham had to take him along. Abraham trusted God and was willing to sacrifice his son because God had commanded him to so do. Isaac trusted his dad. Trusted his dad as his dad followed the Lord. And in so doing, he himself trusted the Lord. And we ask then, are we willing to do what God calls us to do? Are we willing to simply be obedient to his word? I don't have to guess what God has commanded me to do. I have it right here. Abraham had the clear word of God spoken to him. We have the clear word of God spoken to us today. Are we willing to do it? It is in this experience of faith where we come today in a, in a scene where time has passed. Isaac in this story is 40 years old. He is 40 years old without a wife. <clears throat> that makes Abraham 140. In the previous chapter, which we did not cover together, Sarah has died. 
She died at 127 years old. That would mean three years ago from where we are today in Genesis chapter 24. When Sarah died, Abraham wept for her. You see that in chapter 23, verse 2. Abraham wept for his wife. And at the end of chapter 24, you see that Isaac was comforted by his marriage with Rebekah after his mother's death. So here it is three years later, and Isaac is still raw at the passing of his mother. And let me take just a brief rabbit trail. I know that when Tracy and I were married, it was like, oh, leave your father and mother. That was, that was my mind. Leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, which is biblical. But it doesn't mean jettison your family. It is a rare treasure to remain intimate with your mom and dad over the years as that relationship transitions from more this way to more this way, from the vertical parental to the horizontal relationship of friendship. Isaac has no wife. And really in this, in Isaac not having a wife, is the tension of the chapter. Because God has promised a covenant through Abraham. Your descendants, as many as the sand of the sea, look to the stars of the heavens. And it is through Isaac, God said, that your nation would come. He's 40 years old, doesn't have a wife, obviously doesn't have a child then either. And so this is a burden. What we will see today is that a God-honoring faith trusts what God is doing, seen and unseen. And such a God-honoring faith will follow His commands no matter how daunting those commands or how dull those commands are to us. You know, as I mentioned, rarely are any of us going to face a Gettysburg-like a scenario that's going to require incredible heroism. But we are enduring an ordinary existence in school. We go to school, we go to work, we play in the summer, we go swimming, we go shopping, we go to the theater, we go to the kitchen and look in the fridge. Are we going to exercise in all of this a faith that knows God? First thing we're going to see here in this, in this passage is a faith from Abraham, a faith that knows God is often countercultural. The faith of Abraham here is what we see countercultural. 24 verse 1. Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord has blessed, had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. 
Abraham refused to find a son, find a wife for his son among the Canaanites. It's what Esau was going to do in the future. It's what Ishmael did. They just intermarried. Abraham said, "Uh uh-uh. You go, that doesn't explain why. But all we got to do is go back a few chapters to understand why. In Genesis chapter 15, where God the second time presents his covenant to Abraham, he says that I am going to give you this land. You guys are going to be in slavery for 400 years. But when you return, you're essentially going to get all of this land because the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. The nation in which you are living is a mess. It's going to get messier. We see that fleshed out in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 too in the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. It is an amoral mess. And Abraham would not find a wife among such people for they would lead his heart astray. He knew this. Now, this doesn't imply that Abraham lived in a little enclave and tried to keep out, keep himself completely from the world. He interacted with the world. In the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 23, you see that he goes out to the men of the world to find a plot for his wife. He needed some land to bury his wife, and he had to interact with these guys. You would see this in the next chapter where Isaac, in digging wells, has to interact with the men of this world. So they didn't withdraw themselves to a little uh, uh, monastery in the land of Canaan, but they dwelt in this land. At the same time, in dwelling with the la- within the land, Abraham understood that there were parts of this culture that he cannot abide. He cannot be a part of. Their idolatry, their debauchery. He knew that these things would dishonor the living God and they could not be invited into his family. Therefore, what we see at the start of chapter 24, a pagan wife is not an option. So serious was God's covenant with Abraham. He would not do this. So serious is God about marriage that he exhorts us in the same things, but it really goes beyond marriage in our intimate relationships in the world around us. Does our faith and our relationship with God give us eyes to see and to follow Him in obedience? Such a faith is going to be countercultural. Abraham heard about the corruption of the Amorites from God's own lips. He saw it fleshed out in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he did all in his power to keep that corruption from himself and from his family. So will we be so bold? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and into the, into the seventh chapter that Eb read earlier, we see God is exhorting us not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. There is no more intimate a yoking between people today than in marriage. 
And all the time, you see Christian men and women settling. They go, oh, you know, I really, I really like this person. And, you know, there's not going to be another one like this. God's, God's going, hey, warning. Red light on the dashboard. Don't go there. Road out. He gives us these signs, these warnings. Don't do this. Do not become unequally yoked. But it extends beyond marriage into our intimate relationships, our intimate friendships. Again, please have friends who are unbelievers. Please have friends who are unbelievers. What a, what a great gospel witness. What a love. You will have opportunities to shine the love of Christ and to declare the gospel to them if you have friendships with unbelievers. You will. But those who are closest to you, those with whom you weep, those with whom you seek counsel, ought be your brothers and sisters in Christ. In keeping his son from an Amorite wife required great faith. In, in our culture, there are things that we too are, are not going to be able to abide, abide that go beyond our relationships. Entertainment, what do we listen to? What, what songs will we listen to? What movies will we watch? Do you have freedom in Christ? Yes. But God calls us to holiness. Holiness. And we, it's almost like in the church today, we don't want to ask those questions. Well, that's pharisaical. But God says, be holy because I am holy. What relationship does Christ have with Belial? With idols? Did being holy become passe? Is it something we no longer have to abide? You know, if, if God is gnawing at your heart with regard to your place in the world and your involvement with the world, I would, man, before you plunge deep into the pool, pray and seek counsel. Seek the counsel of the Spirit-filled body of Christ. Seek the counsel of the Word of God. So sometimes a faith that knows God is going to be counter-cultural like Abraham's was. But we're going to see with the servant, who seems to be like the star of the show in this chapter, that a faith that knows God is going to produce an expectant obedience. An expectant obedience. We see that Abraham's servant is the eldest of his household, the one who had charge of all that Abraham had. So this was no slouch. This was the guy. This was the guy that was over his house. And the servant, when he gets the command, the first thing he does is he asks a question. You know, oh. Asking a question is not a sin. 
The servant said to him in verse 5, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So do I need to then take Isaac back to go find a son? So he asks, he asks a point of clarification. Now there's a couple ways to ask questions. You can ask a snarky question with your hands on your hips. You go, oh, is that really what you want me to do? And you go, you really don't. You don't want to know the answer. You're just being a pill. And then there is the heart that truly seeks after the possibilities. We are not going to know all that God wants of us in a command. And so sometimes we're going to have to flesh it out. What about? How come? What if? And sometimes you're not going to get an answer. Oh. So don't, don't fear asking questions. Sometimes God will provide you an answer. Sometimes he won't. But the servant asked. He wanted to honor his master. And so he asked for clarification. Then the servant prepares himself expecting God to lead. Look in verse 9. The servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. So he prepares himself for this task, expecting God to lead. Okay, he goes, okay, if I'm going to go get a wife, I've got to get stuff together for this. Ten camels and the gifts that go with the bride price there. He prepares expectingly. He thinks this is going to be a success. I would contend as we look at the way the servant behaves, it never specifies this. But you see very clearly that this man himself has a relationship with the living God. His master's God may not have always been his God, but it is clear that he is now his God. And so... This is his master's command. The Lord will prosper you. So I'm prepping for it. He prepped for it with the supplies and gifts, but he also committed himself to obedience. He bowed before Abraham, put his hand under his thigh. We just shake on it. That's how they did it then. Put his hand under his thigh and promised, I will do this. You know, I, th I think we've lost, in a lot of ways, the power of a handshake, the power of your word. Let's not make light the power of a promise. Do not promise lightly. But the servant prepares expecting God to lead and then the servant acts 
expecting God to lead. He goes. He doesn't just prepare and then wait. He prepares and goes. He goes on the mission. He goes up to Mesopotamia. That would be like starting out from here and heading to Denver. 660 miles. Denver with 10 camels on foot. You can drive it in a day. Take you about a month. At a reasonable clip. A couple of days of rest thrown in. About a month. And so he acts. To the city of Nahor. And you may go, Nahor? Uh, Nahor was, if you flip back uh, to chapter 22, verse 20, it says, After these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. I think we really should go back to biblical names. Um, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. So he went back to this town, hoping to find some of the kin. The servant trusted God to do what his master said he would do. Look at, uh, in, pick up in verse 11. He made the camels kneel outside the city by the well at the time of the evening, at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, in case you couldn't find me. No. I'm standing beside the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to your master. The servant trusts God. He doesn't just go and start knocking on doors. He goes, okay, God, here I am. I'm in this place. I came looking, and so I'm going to start meeting people here this Lord, let her be the first one. Let it, let it be her. Not only that, show me that it's her because not only is she going to offer me a drink, she's going to offer the camels a drink too. Okay? And on we go. Before he had finished speaking, Rebecca's coming out to meet him. Okay, think of this. Pastors talked about this in the past. God is active in ordinary circumstances. Why was Rebecca going out to the well? She always went out to the well. She always went out to the well. She was the one going out to the well. God ordained it. At that moment, the prayer, the time, First one out from the city, Rebecca. There. Think of all the things that God puts in place to make meetings happen. 
to make accidents happen. We call them accidents. God calls them providence. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. That is no small task. 53 gallons a minute they can drink, or in three minutes time. Dude, camels. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence. You know, sometimes when God answers, it was, it was like the little girl in Acts. You know, they're praying for Peter to be released from prison. And when Peter knocks on the door, the little girl was like, whoa. And she left him outside and ran back in. I mean, she was so astonished. And everyone's like, nah, can't be Peter. It's his ghost. You know, we're praying for things. And then when God does the thing, we're like, whoa, he really did it. And so he's, he stand, I stand amazed. He's just gaping at her. Grant me success. God is sovereign, God's plan. And, and she, was, she was amazing. Rebecca was no ordinary girl. I mean, think of it just from these words. God had prepared this one. She was a maiden. She was a virgin. She was pure. She had been in her father's home. She had the heart of a servant. Oh, let me, I'll do that. Okay, here's some water. Oh, you want your camels too? Okay, that's not her attitude. She's like, yes, absolutely, and yes. You want more? Yes, cherry on top. And she was beautiful. And she was beautiful. Oh, the fullness of God's promises. When the camels had finished, verse 22, the man took the gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter are you? Now, see, we know because the author of Genesis, Moses, told us who this is. He doesn't know yet. He's just going, well, she's answered, she's fulfilled everything so far. Whose daughter are you? And is there room for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And what did the man do? He blessed God. He bowed down and worshipped God. Worshipped the Lord. Blessed it be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. 
Then the young woman ran and told her mother's house about these things. She is the daughter of Bethuel. Bethuel would be Nahor's son. Nahor and Abraham were brothers. Therefore, Isaac and Bethuel are cousins. First cousins. Rebecca is Bethuel's daughter. You go, well, that's age difference. But understand this. Nahor was probably having kids at normal ages. Abraham didn't have his son until he was 100 years old. So that kind of skews the timeline a little bit and puts it more on an even plane. The servant bowed down in worship. A faith that knows God is countercultural. A faith that knows God, as seen in the life of the servant, produces an expectant obedience. Third, we see that the, a faith that knows God sometimes requires big steps. Sometimes requires big steps. And we see this played out in Rebecca and her family. Rebecca's brother's name is Laban. When he hears of this, you know, Rebecca ran back and told everybody. Laban then runs out and goes, whoa, who are you? And he says in verse 31, come in, O blessed of the Lord. So we see this family has a heart for the things of God. So they are sensitive to the things of God. And at that time, you know, they, they invite him in. It's hospitality, Middle East hospitality. Here's food, man, and enjoy, kick back, relax. And the servant says, no. Let me tell you my story, which I read right at the start of worship. There was an urgency. I have a mission. I have a mission to accomplish. Here's the mission. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you what God has done. He highlights his urgency. I will not eat until I have said what I have to say in verse 33. He talks about the greatness of Abraham, how God has prospered Abraham. Almost the exact same story that we have covered so far in the sermon. So I won't recap all of that. He mentions Isaac's life. Now, when Abraham left Haran, this region, and Nahor and his family and went down into Canaan, he was 75 years old. Sarah was 66, and she was without a child. So when they left, they were already pretty old, and she was without a child. And now he highlights the miracle of Isaac's life that Isaac has been born. This was 65 years earlier when they left. 65 years have passed. Isaac is now 40. You have to think as you read through this story that perhaps, that perhaps Bethuel is infirmed because you don't see Bethuel play too much of a role in this. Laban, his son, his firstborn son seems to have the role of the one who is over the house. Kind of plays into New Testament themes a little bit. But after the story is told in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. You know, it's, it's like, it is. It is what it is. There it is. Now what are we going to do with it? And they act in faith. 
Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Again, our 21st century sentimentalities kind of bristle a little bit and go, whoa, that is really radical. But it wasn't so radical back then. Somebody was going to come and pledge for your daughter. Hey, I'd like your daughter in marriage, and here are the gifts that I bring. Well, this is kin. This is an honorable man. This is part of our family. And it seems very providential that God is ordaining this. And so they go, sure. But still, this is my daughter that's 600 miles to the south. What's that mean? I will never see her again. No FaceTime, no no texting. Great faith. A great step. When when Abraham's servant heard these words, guess what he did? He bowed down and worshipped. Verse 52, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. He brought out gifts, jewelry, to her brother and to her mother. The end of verse 53. They spent the night, they arose in the morning, and the servant said, we'd really like to go. They're like, Whoa, wait a minute. How about 10 days? How about a bridal time? We celebrate, we feast, party, say our goodbyes, enjoy our time together. And the servant's like, no, we got to go. I mean, I'm I'm on a mission. Don't delay me. The Lord has prospered my way. Send me that I may go to my master. So let us call, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. No hesitation. What? What a big step. What a great faith. You're going to go marry a guy you don't even know. You might have heard a little bit about their family in conversations around the campfire. You're going to go away from everything you've ever known. In a lot of ways, she's like the female Abraham. Leave your family and go to the land that I am showing you. Leave your family and go to a husband I am going to show you. What an incredible step of faith. You know, how willing and eager are we when we see God's hand moving? Are you going to pack up and go to Canaan? Are you going to come to a little bitty church on 8th and Travis to be the pastor I think of the men in our past history who have come to this place in the shadow of the biggest church in the city to be a pastor here. What an extraordinary step of faith. To leave and go someplace else where God is calling your heart. What has God put upon your heart to do? Faith that knows God is countercultural. It produces an expectant obedience and sometimes it requires great steps. 
Most of the time, though, trusting God impels us to wait and just live. That's what we see of Isaac. Isaac is like the where's Waldo of the Bible. You know, this whole, this whole sermon series has been on Isaac. It's like, we've hardly talked about the guy. The first two sermons, he wasn't even around. He was just a promise. And in the last sermon on the, on the sacrifice, he was the passive one. And in this, we've just heard about the son, the son of my master. And so finally we get to see the guy here. 600 miles to the south in Canaan, 40-year-old Isaac, unmarried. Did he not desire it? Maybe God had stilled his desires. Maybe, you know, there's, there's some guys, you know, not a big deal. But he had been in Beer Lahai Roy. Isaac had returned, verse 62, from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. Beer Lahai Roy was named by Hagar. The well of the God who sees. The well of the living one who sees. This is going to be the place where Isaac and his family actually settle. But this is where Isaac was. He had returned, was dwelling in the southern part of Canaan. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Isaac is meditating. How do you bide your time in the ordinariness of life? How do you bide your time, perhaps, if you're someplace you don't want to be? Perhaps you're grieving your mother. Perhaps you'd really like a wife. You know, think of the circumstances that those circumstances troubled Isaac's life. I'm the son of the promise. That's what dad's always said for 40 years. That's what he's told me. I don't have a wife. What about you? What about your job? Oh, man. Doesn't pay what I'd like. Oh, the tasks are boring, interminable, hot, sweaty, hard work. I have no responsibility. Oh, my spouse, the attitude from my spouse Oh, where are the affections that I long for? Oh, he doesn't fix anything around the house. Doesn't know how to fix a thing. What is this place that we are in? Oh, the restrictions that I have to endure, physical. Oh, I'm lame. I can't run anymore. Oh, you know, we're dealing with kidney stones and recovering from surgeries and, and migraines and... Negatively, we can gripe and complain. We can cultivate a heart of bitterness. A really, really strong tree of bitterness can grow up in our heart. Or we can indulge other appetites. Or we could trust God. We could be thankful for His protection, thankful for His provision. We could be thankful for His purpose. We could be thankful for His plan. So we can trust God. We can be thankful. We can tell of His goodness. We can take care of the tasks that He has set before us in the ordinary days of life. Isaac's just meditating in a field at night after a work day. And he raises his eyes. 63. He lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. 
and Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. So this was a ways off. She saw this guy coming. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, Don't miss this. The servant said, What? It is my master. Prior to this moment, the master of the story has been Abraham. The servant now recognizes everything has changed. Behold, it is my master. She took a veil and covered herself. The servant went out and told Isaac all the things that he had done. He doesn't retell it here because we've already heard it twice. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. He loved her. He saw a father love his wife for years and years and years for 40, 37 years until Sarah died. So he knew, saw his dad do it. He knew how to love his wife. And he loved his wife and was comforted. How long until we are comforted? I don't know. How long until the pain we suffer is revealed? I don't know. How about it being relieved? I don't know. How long until we see justice prevail and righteousness restored? I, go, I don't know. All I've got is this. I've got a little piece of the puzzle. I don't know. But God does. God knows what the whole picture is going to be. God is sovereign over this entire story. And it's a beautiful story. I don't care if you're orange and you've got all innies or you're blue and you've got all outies. Everybody's different. But God is weaving an extraordinary tapestry for his glory and we're a part of it. For those who know God, it's going to require us sometimes to be... Quit looking at your belly buttons. It's going to require us to be countercultural. Sometimes that faith is going to require in knowing God for us to be expectant in our obedience, to prepare, to plan, and to go. Sometimes it's going to require big steps. And sometimes it's going to require nothing of you but to be obedient and live the life that God has laid before you. And that's where most of us are going to live, smack dab in the middle of ordinary. Will we trust God by adoring Him and loving Him and thanking Him and obeying Him in the average moments of today and tomorrow? Let's bow. Father God, we give you thanks and praise that you know the entire picture and the beauty of this puzzle. For my brothers and sisters here and for myself, Lord, for those who love you heart and soul, would you work in us? Uh, Would you reveal to us those areas that need scrubbing, those areas where we need to have more fervor for you and trust in you? Father, help us to cling to you more and more. For my brothers and sisters who really have no desire to seek you, who are dry, 
Would you nourish them and nurture them? Father, would you whet their appetite for their Lord and Savior? And Father, if there be any here this morning who do not know you as God and Savior, who do not have the faith, who are dwelling in darkness, it is true they are dwelling in darkness and they are separated from you. The stain of their sin leaves them outside, but you are faithful and just. The finished work of Jesus Christ invites them in. Would you, God, work in their heart today and redeem them, call them by name and adopt them into your kingdom. Father, let us rejoice in the part of the puzzle we all play for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.